And this portion is flowing out of the same text. 1 Timothy 3, where we have spent a couple of Sundays thinking about the qualifications of the elders of the church. And last week we talked about deacons. And immediately after you see verse 14, 15, and 16. And let me read these words for all of us. I am writing these things to you, thee, to thee, unto thee, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, that's Christ, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. Last week I have asked you to watch a video clip, the link that I posted on our Twitter feed. Uh, I don't know how many of you were able to uh, see that clip this past week, but Today's preaching will make better sense if you have. The clip is a pastor doing a Q&A after his lectures on biblical understanding of sexuality at Indiana University. You probably know his name, the pastor who's doing that Q&A. His name is Doug Wilson, pastor from Idaho. Uh, I've, I've known him since 2009, and I believe this church did host him, I believe. I don't know if, uh, if that was the case. Uh, Doug Wilson debated at the time one of the most famous new atheists in the 2000, uh, that time, with Harris Dawkins, and his name was Christopher Hitchens. And his book, the provocative book that he put out at the time, was God is Not Great. He called himself as not atheist, but anti-theist. He was hostile toward any kind of concept of God or gods. But Doug Wilson debated him, and it was taped at a seminary, Westminster Seminary, and it was produced in a DVD form. So I remember watching that DVD at home, and at the time, 2009, I've talked about it in our own church. But what was surprising about the debate between Doug Wilson with Christopher Hitchens was the tone. I expected this anti-theist, one of the famous, most famous atheists at the time, to come out swinging. Uh, to, to scream at each other. But the tone of that debate was courteous one, very thoughtful one. So I was very much struck by the tone of that debate. 
But also, uh, Doug Wilson, in that debate, used something that we have learned from our own seminary, the method of defending the faith, which is known as presuppositional apologetics. We have heard about it, we have learned about it, but we have never seen it in a public setting. The clip is Sexual by Design Q&A, Doug Wilson, 2019, October, and by this time it has about quarter million views. I don't know how many of you are able to watch that. I asked you to watch that, not for the lectures and not even for the answers, though they are helpful. I simply wanted you to feel the atmosphere in which that Q&A was conducted. If you haven't watched it, this, this, some, some of the things that I'm saying would not make sense, but I want you to watch it. How hostile and walked up that group was. Throughout about a couple of hours of that Q&A, there is this non-stop shouting, interruption, laughing, mocking, and insulting going on. People screaming all things at him, and multiple times the, the person will come out and try to quiet down the crowds and even appealing to the police presence. It was nothing like Ligonier Conference Q&A or, or something like that where Q&As are done um, mostly by the Christians. And this video clip was shocking to me. It was done in a university of all places, Indiana University. University, by definition, should be open to all ideas. And when a pastor is trying to explain his own view, you will see the reaction by the entire group. Not everyone there was, probably was a student, but there was a plenty of people interrupting the entire process of that public uh, presentation. I will give you three quotes from that video clip. And a couple of weeks ago, when I was preparing my message on the deacons, you know, 1 Timothy 3, I had my Bible open. And at the same time, I was also watching that clip. Really was shocked at that crowd's hostility, not letting a man talk. Um, and I saw this couple of verses that, that I've read to you. And I thought those two uh, came together. I've played this multiple times to get these quotations as uh, accurately as possible. But throughout of those two-hour presentation, people will line up and ask, will ask questions. But I will give you three sample uh, questions to um, go about our own sermon content. Fourteen minutes in, there is a father and a daughter. And father says, I am a pastor at First United Church here in Wilmington, which is an open and affirming church. 
he says, and there's a cheer from the crowd. He says, it works wonderfully there. My daughter has a question. I did not give her a question. She voluntarily came down. So he introduces her, her daughter, his daughter, probably 10 to 13, and somewhere in between. The girl steps up to a mic, and she asks this question to uh, Doug Wilson. And this is direct quotation. I wanted to know why, when you say we, and when you are saying that you are talking for all Christians, why you think you have the right and privilege of speaking for all Christians, when that's just your side of the story. And there was the loudest cheers coming from the crowd, and she's giving high fives to the people around her. So that's the first quotation. A young girl asking, actually accusing him, who do you think you are when you say we, you do not speak for me. So 29th minute, the second quotation is a lady. She says this, I am a Christian, but you don't speak for me, nothing. I think I believe that God created sexuality for us to enjoy. God loves expressions of sexuality, whether they be straight, gay, bi, queer, or whatever. If you are GLBTQ, God loves your sexuality, and I love you. And she asked these questions again to Doug Wilson. Why your ideas about gender are so much based on the cultural norms of a nomadic society like 10,000 years ago, rather than based on the teaching of Jesus who you claim to follow? There is no longer male or female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. So to me, that means he's saying there is no gender. He sees no gender. That's the second quotation. The third quotation that I would like to, for you to hear is a man. He steps up on 39th minute mark and he says, Why would God shun them if he created them in that way? I am not understanding where you are getting all this hate talk and casting judgment on other people. Bible says judge not. I am trying to understand why you are such a hypocrite. I want an answer in a form of logic if that's possible. On and on for two hours people will scream at him, Boo him, and, and it is a very, very hostile, if not dangerous, setting. All these questions force us to ask more fundamental question. What is a Christian and what is the Church of Jesus Christ? When that well-meaning girl asked that question, why do you think you have the right and privilege of speaking for all Christians when that's just your side of the story? I wanted to ask her, that young girl, what do you mean by Christians? What is your definition uh, when you say Christians? Because unless you define what it means to be a Christian, we will talk in, in peril. You will, we will miss each other. 
for the second lady who said, I think I believe that God created sexuality for us to enjoy and God loves expressions of sexuality in whatever form. We have to ask, where did she get that idea from? We have to ask, what do you mean? When you say you think you believe, uh, you, you believe that God created and God loves all expressions of sexuality, based upon what are you saying then? The last one is the, one of the most prevalent questions that you will encounter. Whenever we as Christians these days, we try to talk about our own views on certain things, especially on sexuality, inevitably you will encounter, as soon as you talk, someone will say, that's a hate talk, right? You've heard about that, you've seen it, if not, you have faced it. As soon as you say certain things from biblical perspective, what do you hear? Immediately, they will accuse you of being a hater. That's a hate talk. Briefly, briefly, if I may respond to that, telling you that you are wrong is not hate. That's just the very basic fundamentals of the fabric of human society. I wanted to ask him that man, have you told anyone that he or she is wrong? Or have you ever said no to someone? in human relationship. To be in a human relationship, whether that is LGBTQ community, whether it is Christian community, whether it is secular, whatever community that you belong to, you probably, if you could be honest, you probably have said no to something or someone. By saying no, you are denying someone's request or their desire, whatever the desire is. You are bound to say no. You deny somebody's desire. But that does not mean that you are hating that person. In fact, not telling you that you are wrong could be a form of hate, consigning you to a hell. So when he was all walked up and says to him, Doug Wilson, I'm not defending Doug Wilson. But I'm saying, when he says, and he's angry toward Doug Wilson and says, you are such a hypocrite. And if he, that man, could follow his own logic, he shouldn't and cannot tell Doug Wilson to be wrong. Because by saying that he is wrong, he is hating Doug Wilson. And if he could employ his own logic, what he is really saying is that it is okay for me to say no to you and hate you, but you shouldn't say anything. Just keep quiet. You cannot express your thoughts because any statement that is contrary to my own beliefs is form of hate when in fact he is committing the same error. So while I was watching that, I had my Bible open like I said. I'm looking at these verses. And I thought there is the answer. I wanted to move on to the next topic, but I believe these few verses would really answer that question. My really question again is, what is a Christian and what is the church? I trust that this will be self-evident to all of you. I hope so.
But you cannot be sure. So even though this may be the very basic Christian understanding of reality, let us affirm that because this is found in the same passage of 1 Timothy 3. So let me read again those two verses. I am writing these things to you, to Timothy, singular, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I am writing to you so that you, Timothy, will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. What is he saying? He's saying, if I'm not here in person, you know what to do, because I have written these things down for you. And these things refer to the entire letter, 1 Timothy, not simply to the qualifications of elders and deacons, but what is he saying is, what he's saying is, You have my word of instruction. And follow that. Then you will know what to do. Or God will bring to your memory that what you should should be doing. If you read from the first chapter of this letter, 1 Timothy, this is how it happened. This is what Apostle Paul is speaking to him in chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. Remain, Ephesus, the great city, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Apostle was busy. He had to go to Macedonia. So he's leaving his young disciple, young minister, Paul, uh, Timothy behind, charging him at the church where he ministered for three years and beyond, saying, you tell those some of the men not to teach wrong doctrines. You think that's easy? It's a difficult thing to confront people in the church. That was his job. And as you know, Timothy was a timid young man. Tell them not to teach strange doctrines. But that word literally in Greek means heterodox. Heteros means different kind. So it is not, he's not saying, telling them to stop teaching a false doctrine or strange doctrines, but different doctrines. That was his job. First verse, verse 3, in the beginning after the greetings, you remain and tell the men, some of the men, not to teach different doctrines. And you are forced to ask, different from what? Different from what? And I will give you a few quotations. At the bottom, Christianity cannot be reinvented or improved. We have to stick as closely to the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, For I deliver to you, Corinthians, as of first importance, what I also received. That great apostle who is going to write more than half of the New Testament epistles, he will say, you know what, what I have given to you is something that I have received. It's not something that I've invented. It's not something that I've I've sat down and just wrote my systematics. No. This is something that I've received and I have 
delivered those to you, he said. In another place, Jude, only one chapter, Jude verse 3 says this, to contend for the faith that was once for all, once for all delivered to the saints. Christian faith has been delivered to the church once and for all. There's a finality to it. That word is used multiple times in Hebrews referring to Christ's sacrifice. You cannot re-sacrifice Christ, correct? Likewise, the faith that we, that we as a church today, 2,000 years later, sitting here in Queens, worshiping our God, is once and for all delivered to the saints, and we have received after generation after generation. And that great warning to Galatians, different from what? I'm trying to answer. Different from what? What you are accustomed to, Timothy. What I've explained to you. The bigger question is, how far did Apostle Paul understood himself to be the mouthpiece of God? But that's a separate question. In Galatians, he says, to the, to, as a warning to Galatian church, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. What he's saying is, there is no such thing as different kind of gospel. Different gospel is no gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, and here it is. But even if we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Did you hear that? I preached to you what I've received from Christ and from previous generations of Christians before him. And now he preached that gospel to Galatian church at Galatia. And he says, even if we come back to you and preach another kind of the gospel, which is no gospel at all, then man, us to be accursed. If even angel came from, declare themselves to be, we are the angel from heaven. God sent us and tell you a different kind of story, then you should know that they are wrong. And the judgment is pronounced. Let him be accursed. Let him be kicked out of the covenant promise of God. So, Timothy is in charge of that church at Ephesus. His job is to tell some men, false teachers, not to teach, not wrong doctrine. It is wrong because it is different kind. Different from what? What he is used to. What he has heard from Apostle Paul. You see. So, what is a Christian? And what is the church of Jesus Christ? It has to do with, as you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ in this totality. And the gospel that we have received is like a family heirloom. It is a treasure that you do not fix. Treasure that you do not improve. You do not, you do not break. You just receive it from previous generation. You take care of it. And you hand it down to the next generation. You are, in a sense, the guardian of the truth that is deposited in, obviously, in the Word of God. But we play that role. That the word of God has to be preserved. So, fundamentally, when that young girl asked the question, who do you think you are? When you say we, you're not speaking for me. You have to ask the fundamental question, what do you mean? We, for you. What is your definition of a Christian? 
And if anyone deviates from the word of God and says or claims himself or herself to be a Christian, according to that very basis of the word of God, you should say, let it be accursed. You do not have authority to reinvent what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church. But you see that all the time. Let me refer back to this text again. Verse 15. Apostle Paul never really does this. But in this place, he says, What I am writing to you, there's a purpose. That you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That's why I am writing this. That one could refer to Timothy himself. For him then, it is to follow the instructions given by Paul in this letter, which now we receive it as the word of God. But it is open to all Christians how one ought to conduct himself or herself in the household of God, in the family of God. In here, Apostle expects Timothy and other Christians to follow the instructions given by him. He demands them to obey. He immediately about the deacons and elders, if you are going to elect, apply these standards to the man. And bigger setting, if you, if you want to know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, in the church of God, follow the word of God or the instructions that I'm giving it to you, then there's no difference. There's a moral quality based upon divine command, and that turning point is Christ. When the second lady says, I believe God created human sexuality to enjoy for, for our enjoyment, and God loves and blesses all kinds of all forms of expressions of sexuality. I mean, obvious question is, where did she get that idea from? Well, she would like to believe that. She would like her own opinion to be the guiding principle. But you cannot find that from the instructions given by Paul, especially even 1 Timothy chapter 1. It talks about homosexuality. He says here, Household of God, that basically means in the family of God. And did you notice that word? How one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. It's possessive of God. To be a Christian is to belong to the house of God. Not the other way around. God does not belong to your house or God is not subject under your own house room. That's what everybody is saying in that Q&A. But in the household of God, it is His house. Can you say and act in whatever way and say we affirm whatever expressions of morality and we believe God affirms all of that. And I mean, once again, obvious question is, by what? What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? According to what? 
Based upon what? And only thing that will settle the issue at the end of the day is the word of God. So you have to press them to appeal to the scriptures. And I mean, if you could show us where you get that idea from, from the word of God, and only thing that we are saying, demanding from you is to show us from the word. Otherwise, whatever you say goes, whatever I say go, then there will be total confusion. Right? In the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The word, as you know, the church is called out. Called out by what? By God, through what? Through the gospel preaching, through the word, out of the word, into his household. That's the church. So household of God is the church, and he says, church is church of the living God. God is alive, he's saying. God resides in his church. And how does God rule his church is the question. When that father figure shows up in that Q&A and says, we are opening a farming church, it gives a false notion. Churches should be open and affirming, yes. But depending on what standard. We do not say because you are a sinner, you do not belong here. That is not the gospel call. But when he says we are open and affirming, we have to ask by what standard and whatever sin that you are going to affirm, our Bible, the Word of God does not. So we have to make decision based upon some kind of objective statement or some, some set of truth. And he is appealing to his own, his own heart, his own standard, his own idea of what it means to be a church. But according to the apostle, the authorized spokesperson is the family of God, is the church of the living God. Sunday gathering today is an assembly of the living God. And the living God rules his people by his word and his spirit. And once again, he describes the church of the living God with a couple more words. And he says the pillar and support, or that means the ground of the truth. What is the church is? Brian Shepherd says on this verse, Of course, the truth comes from God. God is, the, God is the source of truth and not the church. But whenever the church is faithful to God's word, it is the foundation and pillar of God's truth in this world. Uh, I have many thoughts. Because even among the Christian people, there's so much divisions. And even among the conservative and Bible-believing Christians, there's total confusion about what it means to believe and what the truth is. You just need to open up a TV station or watch your favorite preachers and not everybody agrees on, on anything. Even if we affirm all these things, I could pray that God will make these things really uh, clear and evident to all of us. Even the Bible-believing Christians affirming whatever they want to affirm. 
and fight amongst ourselves. But Bible says the church is the pillar and support or the ground of the truth. And truth, what is the truth? What is truth? We as Bible-believing Christians, we all should affirm God is the truth, Christ is the truth, His Word is the truth, and I pray that all of you could affirm that. What I've seen and said today, isn't it obvious things? Isn't it self-evident to all of you that one cannot claim what it means to be a Christian if that person deviates from the standard of the Word of God? As the heirs of the Reformation, we all know how, we all know how to settle an issue. Not by appealing to the traditions, not by appealing to some man-made theology, but to the Word of God. And yes, there are some disagreements among Bible-believing Christians, but what we have seen today and this past year is just disheartening for many of us. The final verse in this section always struck me as an odd statement. If you will look at verse 16. Remember the context. You are just reading about the qualifications of an overseer. And you have just heard what and how you should elect the deacons based on the qualifications that he has just said. And he said in verse 14 and 15, I am writing this to you so that you know how, you should know how to conduct yourself or one should conduct oneself in the household of God and talked about the church which I will understand. And, and to be a church, according to that word, you must follow the instructions given. Timothy is not free to do whatever he wants to do in terms of running the church in Ephesus. You must follow my instruction. You must measure everything by what you have been hearing from me. If someone deviates and talks about different kind of teaching, that is a wrong teaching. Let him be anathema. But that section, chapter 3, ends with verse 16. Would you look at, could you look at that verse 16 with me? And it says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit that is through the resurrection. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. What is he talking about? I thought that is an odd transition. You know, Apostle Paul sometimes does that from first gear to fifth gear. Just all of a sudden, he talks about something totally. And I've told you, he's kind of like genius. His mind is racing. And verse 16 is not something that is detached from what he's talking about. So when I read that verse 16, I went back again and just checked the Greek text, if there's any conjunction. NAS doesn't have one. But New King James has one. In Greek, there is. End by common confession. I believe what he's saying in verse 16 is, and by common confession, he's drawing his attention again. What is, what is verse 16? Verse 16 is about Jesus Christ, right? Shown, revealed in the flesh, vindicated, and angels proclaimed among the nations, taken up in glory. It talks about Christ. And if you have a Bible like me, it is set in a poem 
format, because it is. It is a hymn. But by common confession, what he's saying is that if you are church, that church that I've just described, he's in a sense saying, don't we confess this? This probably has been a hymn that everybody sung at the time, that early church time. It is a well-known confession. And he's drawing that attention and he's saying, if you are the church of Jesus Christ, at the core of your confession should be that confession about Christ. What does that mean? If you do not confess this, if you deny this, you are no church of Jesus Christ. You cannot claim to be a Christian and deny verse 16. You see, verse 16 has been the undergirding truth statement for Paul. Everything that he has talked about and will talk about in 1 Timothy 3, is it, that it was based upon that confession. Christ-exalting confession. Christ-confessing confession. And who could claim to be a Christian and deny that? And that confession is not isolated confession. You receive it from the Word of God. And no one, none of you, even not me, no denominations, no great theologians, they are authorized to deny that and call himself or self to be a Christian. That, that much should be agreed upon. That much should be, we should confess that to be the case. Or else, anyone or any person could claim oneself to be a Christian or a church and do whatever you think is right in your own sight. But that is not the case. So today, I hope and pray that you read this and say, Amen to all of these words. Christian is someone that confesses this, believe this, and try to hand this down to other people in our next generation. At the end of the day, I was thinking, why so much confusion? One of the hardest things in human life is to communicate with other people. If you're working, what's the hardest thing at work? It's not the work, it's the people. And at the core of that difficult experience lies misunderstanding, not understanding. You talk, it's just going nowhere. That frustration of that not understanding, misunderstanding. I said this and they turn around and say another thing. Why do you think is the case? It's not. Lack of information, though certainly that could be the case. I simply want you to know, sin corrupts everything. People are saying all of those in their Q&A, calling proudly themselves to be the authentic Christian church or Christian person, from my perspective, delusional. Why is that? They believe they are the truth. We believe we are the truth. Only thing left is shouting match, if not fist fights and, and, and God forbid, murders on the streets. 
Sin has an effect upon human beings, not simply lying, stealing, committing murder, and all that, but in our own processing of God's information. People believe different things. Yes, we could disagree as an Orthodox community, but people radically differ from each other, even in Christian community, because we are all crooked in our own ways in, in understanding the information. Information doesn't come straight to us because of sin. I will end, I will end with this. Then what is the solution? Based upon the Word of God, we confess Christ Himself to be the truth and His inspired Word of God to be the truth. God, our God, and the Bible, nothing else. Then the difference is not by acknowledging other systems of thoughts to be true or truth. We cannot. Because that's not what the Bible says. That's not the humility that Christians should possess. Acknowledging you're right, you're right, you're right. You know, our humility comes from this. That only truth that we believe we possess. That sounds very arrogant. But by the nature of the case from the Word of God, if that is the truth, we confess that to be the truth, Our humility comes from receiving that only truth by grace alone. That's the difference. It's not that we will acknowledge other religions to be true, all these arguments to be true, because they are obviously not, based upon this standard. But our humility comes from the fact that God has given this truth to us undeserving sinners. We are no different from them. But by His sheer mercy and grace, God has given this to all of us. And by the grace of God, we do not resent what is written in the Word of God. When they point their fingers at us and say, you guys are hypocrites, we readily acknowledge that and say, that's right. None of us can live up to what we profess and confess and But God saved us by the work of Christ and through grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the difference. We will acknowledge our own shortcomings. We'll still maintain the truth as we see and find it from the Word of God. People will misunderstand us, mistreat you, but you will stand your ground saying this is the truth. And you love them and you pray for them and ask them to come into the household of God. Once again, sin clouds their minds. It does not come as it should. And that's where we are. But the church was in that position for 2,000 years. We are not the first generation to face such hostility from the world. So we may need to take more word and may God strengthen you. And may we go to the word of God, the very source of truth and the foundation where we see the church of the living God, the pillar and support, the buttress of the truth in this world, 
Let us sustain God's truth by His grace for the glory of God and also for the fallen humanity that so desperately need these needs, this, this truth of God that we possess by the grace of God. Let us pray.